You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, just look in the seats in front of you. You can find Revelation chapter 1 on page 1028. Imagine that this morning you did what most of us did and you picked up your phone. And as you picked up your phone, you noticed that you got a text. And initially, as you looked at who sent you that text, you thought this must be a scam because it said it was from the President of the United States. Now, quickly, you were able to determine in some fashion that this was not a scam. It was actually genuinely from the President of the United States. And as you quickly unlocked your phone... You saw that for reasons he could not reveal, you were the only citizen chosen to hear top secret information. Here's what the information was. Is that on November 1st, the United States would be attacked. They had top secret information to know how that attack would play out. Many Americans will die. The dollar and the financial system of our country will be relegated to the value of monopoly money. The food supply will be completely dried up, and and the clothes that you're wearing will be the only clothes that you will have to protect you from the elements. Shelter, that's only something you'll be able to create for yourself with the minimal supplies that will be left. Human rights, that will be only something you can dream about. Maybe some of you are thinking, finally, pastor's talking about the end times. But you know, this story is actually based on a true story. That true story is actually recorded for us in Scripture, and it predates 587 B.C. And in the text that God gave to the prophet Habakkuk, he asked Habakkuk to respond to this news with joy. And so imagine at the end of that text from the president, he said, I don't have any hope for you, but the only thing I'm asking of you is have joy. Unbridled, genuine, wholehearted joy. Now, I don't know about you, but if I got that text this morning, I would not have a natural response to be filled with joy. Like many of you, I would be looking for opportunities to fight. I would be looking for opportunities to stockpile. I would be looking for opportunities to warn my family and friends. And yet, the message that Habakkuk was given is, have joy. And the solution and conclusion that Habakkuk had was, I'm filled with joy. And what I want us to understand through this illustration is that the events that we'll read about in Revelation have been taking place over and over and over again. It is not something that we need to wait until the end of time to experience. And the value of the book of Revelation is that it gives us everything that we need to be able to experience anything this world throws at us with joy. Now, the passage this morning in 12 verses is the quick start guide. So if you buy an appliance or technology, you usually get instructions. There's an instruction manual, and it's usually pretty thick. 
Gives you a lot of details on how to use the appliance, but there's usually a quick start guide that gives you the high-level view, the high-level understanding, so that if you just have that, you have what you need to get started, and that's what these verses are. I want to give you a quote from Nancy Guthrie's book, Blessed, that will frame our understanding, not just of this passage, but the entire book of Revelation. Listen to this. What is required of all kingdom subjects living in this time in between Jesus' ascension and his second coming? Patient endurance. Patiently enduring the suffering that is inherent in identifying with Jesus. That would serve as a big idea, but I tried to capture this in a simpler sentence. Here's the big idea of the 12 verses we'll be studying Conquering and enduring is possible and expected, and here is how you can. Let me read the verses, and then we'll unpack them together. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze we find in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, He held seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword that was sharp, and his face was like a sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The quick start guide we need to be able to conquer and endure with joy. Number one, recognize your calling. Recognize your calling. Listen, God's word is so awesome. Every word is intentional. And I want to model to you as I'm preaching, not something that you can't do, but something we all can do. If we read the Bible and we ask questions of it and we realize that every word is intentional, then we want to ask questions of the text. And the first question that I ask is, verse 9, why does John identify himself by name for a third time? When you study the epistles in the New Testament, usually the author says, I, Paul, or I, Peter, 
And once they've identified themselves, they don't do it again. But John now, for the third time, identifies himself by name. Isn't that interesting? He did it in verse 1. He did it in verse 4. And now he does it again in verse 9. Why does he do this? Well, I would encourage you to write this down. What he's doing is he's identifying with his readers. He's identifying with his readers. He's letting his readers know, listen, I'm in the same context as you. I'm not some apostle writing from an ivory tower. I'm not disconnected with you. I'm actually identifying with you. And he does that grammatically. Remember, we talked about when we study the Bible, we use micro tools. Those are the historical context and the language. And then we use macro tools, which is studying the text in light of the whole. And then recognizing that the Bible is an unfolding revelation that the light, as it were, in the room of interpretation continues and gradually gets turned up as we progress from Genesis to Revelation. That's how we're supposed to study the Word of God. That's how the authors of Scripture understood it. That's how Jesus interpreted it. That's how the New Testament authors interpreted it. And they want us to do the same. So the grammar here is interesting. There's, there's actually a structure that John uses in the original that brings these contexts together. And so the first context that he brings together right there in the text is brother and partner. You see it in the text. He brings brother and partner together. So what he's saying is, look, I am your brother, but I'm also your partner in what? In the tribulation. Now, some have read this, and usually when there's an article before a term, it usually means something specific or something technical, and so some people have looked at this and said, oh, there it is, the tribulation. The seven years that Revelation seems to be explaining and describing. But what John is not talking about here is some technical period of time of tribulation. And the reason I can explain it that way is really twofold. One is that he says that he's on the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos, I believe we have a picture of it. This is a modern-day picture, but what you can see, perhaps, in the distance is a mountain range that's kind of foggy. This was to the west of the continent or the area of Asia Minor. Asia Minor is where all of the seven churches were found. But where John was sent is he was sent to this island that was actually a penal island or a punishment island in the Roman Empire. And so what would happen is if you were determined to be a, a, a threat to the Roman Empire, you would be sent to Patmos for a period of time. It was rocky in its terrain. There wasn't much to it. There wasn't an agricultural center there. And you would be sent to this rather remote island to spend some time thinking about your crimes. Now, the Roman Empire was actually soft toward Christianity initially. And they initially thought that Christianity and Jewishness and Jewish religion were the same. And so that's the beginning of how Rome viewed Christianity. But by the time of Nero, he started to view Christians as instigators, and you've studied history and that as there was a fire burning and Nero was playing his fiddle, who was it that he accused of starting the fire? Christians. 
led to the Colosseum. It led to significant persecution in Rome. But after Nero came Domitian, the emperor. And Domitian demanded emperor worship. And because Christians, true Christians, would not do that, he didn't just use, look at them as instigators. He started looking at them as rebels and threats to the empire. And so that, as best as we can tell, is the context historically of when this revelation was given. And most likely, John was sent to Patmos by the governor of Asia because he was sick and tired of John's loyalty to, look at what the text says, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John's devotion and loyalty was not to Rome first. It was actually to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And look at the text in verse 9. John brings together tribulation and kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Both of those, as followers of Jesus Christ, go together. Just as brother and partner go together, so do tribulation and kingdom this side of eternity. And what this is revealing is that we actually can reign with Christ. We are actually reigning with Christ in a not complete fashion. Let me explain that by looking at the last phrase in this list of verse 9. He says that there is a brother and partnership. There is tribulation and kingdom. There is patient endurance that are, look at the phrase, in Jesus Friends, if you are in Jesus, we have a calling that these words actually unpack. When I think of calling, I remember growing up, people would say to me, Jeff, you're so good with children. And I would do these British voices, and I would play with them, and kids seemed to like that. And I would do babysitting, and I would be the one that that parents would put in charge of the kids, and and I enjoyed that. But as I got older, I started realizing as we were getting ready to have our daughters that, huh, there's a different calling to being good with kids as a babysitter than as a parent. Because as a babysitter, I handed the kids off to the parents. As a babysitter, I could be asked to babysit a child and think, hey, either my life context doesn't allow me to do that, or I do not want to babysit that devil child. (laughs) But as a parent, we have a different calling, don't we? Crying in the night, that's my responsibility. Poo-poos and blowouts, that's Sally's responsibility. Just kidding. (laughs) But as our kids get older, shepherding them through teenage experiences, our responsibility. Shepherding them through potential spouse, careers, college choices, that's our responsibility. It's our calling. And friends, if you are in Christ, what John is saying here is, listen, if you are in Jesus, we have a calling, and that calling is, you can write this down, patient endurance. Isn't it interesting, and I'll I'll, I'll tip my hat toward where I believe Revelation speaks about a tribulation period. When we look at Scripture, what is the pattern of God with his people? Is it to remove them from tribulation or to give them what they need to endure? It's the latter, isn't it? 
God is not surprised when tribulation comes. Even difficult and tough tribulation, God does not say, oh, you're my children, so I'm going to actually remove you from that. He says, no, 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 no. I want you to go through it, and I'm going to give you what you need to patiently endure. And we actually see that in these verses. It says that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, as best as we can tell. This is the first day of the week. As we look at the New Testament, there is limited detail that it gives, but we can see that Christians began to identify the first day of the week as important because that was the day of the week on which Jesus rose from the dead. And so because of that, there was a tradition that began to start that Christians would come together on the first day of the week, call it the Lord's Day, and they would corporately gather to worship. That's why we do what we do. But but on that Lord's Day, and, and by the way, It's interesting that when you were on the island of Patmos, most prisoners lost track of time. Most prisoners were working hard mining, and they lost track of time. But but we see in this that John kept track of time, and he knew this was the Lord's day. And on the Lord's day, when he was focused on the Lord, the Spirit came to him and put him in a context where he got to see a revelation. See, God will show you exactly what you need in times of tribulation so that you can patiently endure. And he wanted other Christians to be able to experience that. And that's why the thunderous voice said, write to the churches. It's interesting, that picture that was up on the screen, that mountain range that I showed you in the distance, was actually an opportunity for John to see those churches that he loved to see the mainland, that as he was riding to Thyatira and Sardis and Ephesus, he could actually see the land, and I think that would have been special for him. But Jesus wanted his church and his followers to have exactly what they needed written in a book and sent to each one of them to be able to patiently endure no matter what because they are in Jesus. And so, friend, if you are in Jesus, your calling is to patiently endure whatever life throws at you. Which brings me to number two. Recognize your commander. Recognize your commander. Verse 10 says there was a voice. It was thunderous. That voice commanded him, write something in a book. And so John does what every one of us would do, that if you heard a loud noise in the back of this room, I promise you, 99% of you would look. Others of you would be looking at me to see my face. Is everything okay? And so John hears this thunderous voice, which, by the way, if you look at the phrase that John uses to describe his experience, it is actually a similar phrase of Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel. So you can see John sees himself standing in the same spot and in the same context as an Old Testament prophet. And so it says in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice. Of course he did. He hears this loud voice, he hears this voice command, and he wants to know, who is it that's my commander? In God's mercies, I have been tasked by being the go-to IT person for my family. And I have a specific family member who will remain unnamed that constantly is texting or calling me for IT support. 
So recently, I was helping this individual who will remain nameless, and I noticed a lot of emails from Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, and Governor DeSantis. He asked me the question, should I open those? My answer was, no, no, no. Why? Because the subject lines were very ominous. The subject lines were, send money. And I helped this individual see that this is not actually the person you think it is. You can tell that by emails. You can tell that by the words that are used. You can tell that by looking at the links without clicking them. But I also reminded this individual that, listen, Governor DeSantis is not your commander. Marco Rubio is not your commander. Donald Trump is no longer your commander. You only take orders from your commander. And what we see in this text is a revelation of who the commander is of John and of us. And I want to put a table up on the screen to just open our eyes to the awesomeness of what John is revealing. He says, verse 12, that I turned to see the voice, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. As providence would have it, my reading through the Bible in the year was actually Zechariah 4. And I'll explain to you why it's significant that the vision that John saw is slightly different. But here, very clearly, the seven lampstands are a reference to a similar experience that Zechariah had. He goes on and he says, I saw one like a son of man. And you can write down Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Verse 13 says he had a long robe, and that original word actually can be traced to the Old Testament for the uniform of a priest. He says in verse 13, he had a sash around his chest that was golden, that actually denotes royalty. And he says in verse 14, that he had hairs that were white like snow, like wool. Daniel 7, 9, and 13 through 14 describe that. Verse 14, eyes of fire, Daniel 10, 6, that reveal that this individual will be, will be a judge. Verse 15, feet, pure bronze, Daniel 10, 6, describing moral purity. Verse 15, a voice roaring like Daniel 10, 6. Verse 16, seven stars, Zechariah 4, 2, Daniel 12, 3, which by the way, just as an aside, historically, there was a myth that if a son of a Roman emperor died, that they became stars. And I think that's significant. That Jesus was actually holding seven stars. He had authority over the seven stars. Verse 16, a two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. Isaiah eleven four 4 and 49, 2, again, showing that he's a judge. Verse 16, his face shone like the sun in full strength. Daniel 12, 3, Judges five thirty one. No wonder, chat, verse 17 says, John fell on his face at his feet. Wow, this is Jesus. And listen, what shouldn't awe us is a sword that's described coming out of his mouth because that's not what John literally was talking about. What we shouldn't spend time thinking about is how white is white hair? 
What we shouldn't spend time talking about was, was it really gold or was it golden fabric? That's not the point. What the point is, is that Jesus is God. The Colossians 1.19, in him, the fullness of deity dwells. And friends, what I want us to see is that I think sometimes we are taking emails from a commander we call Jesus, who is more our design than he is this. That is more our preferences than he is this. A Jesus that I'm hearing other churches and pastors in our area describe that he just allows you to love whoever you love. That's not this Jesus. A Jesus whose love is he just accepts us all where we are. That's not this Jesus. And friends, we as Christians need to constantly be recalibrating our understanding that when the email comes, who the commander is. And that answer is in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That's why John goes all the way back to the Old Testament to describe who Jesus is. Jesus is not just revealed by the red letters in your book, in your Bible. Jesus is not limited to the four Gospels in the New Testament. Jesus is not limited to Jesus of the New Testament. Jesus is, from Genesis to Revelation, God, very God. That's our commander. Friends, when we see this Jesus, the only appropriate response is the response of John in verse 17. He falls at his feet. Oh, but I love that there's more, isn't there? So yes, we need to recognize our calling. Yes, we need to recognize our commander. But third, we need to recognize our commission. And there's a specific commission to John. See, again, this is hopefully modeling to us how to interpret the Bible. Even though the outline point is recognize your commission, we don't get to you and me until we understand that, until we understand them. We go to Scripture and the context of the original author and the original audience, and we have to understand that before we can get to us. Do, Do we get that? Because I hear so many times in Bible studies, people begin with, well, I think, or I feel, and who cares? If what you think and what you feel can be backed up in a Genesis to Revelation defense, then okay, then we do care what you think. Because what you think is what the Bible thinks. And the more we as 21st century, who are so in tune with our feelings and our emotions, can get to a place of humility and submission where this is what is driving our emotions and our feelings, then we're going to be in a better position to be able to conquer and endure no matter what the world sends us. So the first question to ask is, what is the commission that God gave to John? He's confronted with the Christ of Scripture, verse 17, and he falls at his feet as though dead. Listen, this is actually an appropriate response. Would you write that down? This is actually an appropriate response. It is appropriate when you are confronted with the God of the universe and when you see Jesus for who he is to respond in, listen to this, the right kind of fear. Would you write that down? The Bible actually commands us to fear this God. You can write down Ecclesiastes 12, 13. 
One of my favorite books in the entire scripture. And it is so relevant for us today. Solomon constantly says, listen, the pursuits of this word world are habel. They are smoke that lingers after you blow out the candles on a birthday cake. They are real. There is some enjoyment, but it does not satisfy. It does not deliver. So why are we pursuing what the world has to offer as though it does? It leaves us empty. It leaves us wishing for more. But Solomon says, after trying wives, after trying education, after trying food and drink, after trying wealth, after trying everything that the world has to offer, I've come up with the conclusion of the matter, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, fear God. Isn't that interesting? Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said, listen, the application of trying everything that the world has to offer is to actually fear God. But the word fear means to revere, to worship, to stand in awe. So it is appropriate to fall at the feet of Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus reveals more. Look at verse 17. I am the first and the last. Remember back in verse Eight, I believe it was. Well, let me just make sure. I'm the Alpha and Omega, yes. God the Father, the first and the last, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And now Jesus is saying, look, just as God the Father is the first and the last, so am I. And then look what he says. I'm the living one, which is amazing because, look, he died, and behold, he's alive forevermore. Because of his resurrection, he now has the keys, and he now has the authority over the thing that should cause the greatest fear and phobia in our life, and that is our death. And God says, look, because of my resurrection, I can take the thing that we human beings should fear most, and I actually have authority over that. What's interesting, though, is he says, John, listen, the right kind of fear is not a fear that leaves you dead and actionless. The right kind of fear is actually a fear that produces action. And that's what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments. What Jesus says to John is, listen, don't fear in a way that keeps you Stalled that keeps you at my feet doing nothing. He says, fear not, act, obey. And that's when he gives the command in verse 19, write, therefore. Because I am who I just revealed to you, because you have responded to me appropriately in worship, I expect you to act. And friends, that's the gospel. We don't act so that we can be saved. We are saved, and then we naturally want to act. That's what the book of James is about. If you're truly saved, if you have been transformed by faith, and you have a new nature, you should, like a baby who gets to breathe oxygen for the first time, naturally act. We should naturally produce fruit. We should naturally produce works. We read the Bible because, oh, we get to see this Jesus. We come to church because we get to learn more about him and lift up our voices in solidarity, worshiping our God, encourage one another, pray for one another, use our talents and our gifts to glorify Christ by building his church. What a privilege. And so John's commission is 
worship, and obey. But specifically, he says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. I do believe this is an outline for the book, but not how traditionally it's been understood. There are scholars and pastors who believe that what Jesus is saying here is that the things that you have seen are chapter 1, the things that are are chapters 2 through 3, and the things that will take place after this are chapters 4 through 22, as though this neatly fits into a chronology, into a timeline, and everything happens in this beautiful, specific order, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Here's my hypothesis. I'll ask the team to put this on the screen. Revelation is a report from the perspective of heaven of the age from Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension until his second coming. And it's viewed like many replays of one play from different angles. So many of you are going to watch the most important NFL game of the weekend, the Vikings against the Bears this afternoon. And as you do, and as you're following that with such purple and gold pride, you will see this play out. Kirk Cousins' bombs that he throws to Jefferson and the touchdowns that we have over and over again will be viewed from different angles. But it's the same play. I think that's what Revelation is about. And I think what Jesus is doing for John is saying, listen, this is what I want you to write. I want you to write in a way that is from heaven's perspective, the events from my ascension to my second coming. And we're going to look at it from all different angles. That's the commission to John. But what's the commission to us? It's actually right here in the text. Growing up, I was the first of three children. And so I had the privilege of doing most things first. That means my brother and sister got to learn from me what not to do mostly. And I think that's what Jesus is saying about these seven churches. He says in verse 20, as for the mystery, the mysterion, something that was hidden before that is now revealed. This is different than the mystery of the revelation. The apocalypse is similar in that it is unveiling something that was previously veiled, but an apocalypse is looking at it from heaven's perspective, from heaven's terms with symbols and looking at things from the unseen realm's perspective. A mystery, a mysterion, is trying to take something that was hidden and reveal it in human terms, in a human way of understanding. And so he says, as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, I'm going to actually explain that to you. And the key is Zechariah 4, 1 through 10. In that vision, Zechariah saw one lampstand. Here we see how many. What does it say in the text? Seven. He's actually drawing our attention through symbolic numbers, the point that God is making. Back in Zechariah, the terms and the concepts were viewed through the lenses of Israel being the people of God. 
by the Mosaic Covenant being the vehicle through which humans could actually enter into faith with God and have a covenant relationship with him. But now we're seeing, no, 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 no. There's something bigger at play here. And the seven is a word that describes a completion. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, listen, I am writing this to the seven churches, literal churches. He went through and he named seven literal churches. We'll see next week. They are locations on a physical map. And so these are historical churches, but they are intended to have a broader application. There will be specific instruction to each church, but it has a broader revelation and a broader application for all churches of all time until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. Here's a quote. The message is that the churches maintain their role as priestly kings, as faithfully witnessing to the testimony of Jesus Christ in the face of suffering. That's the message of Revelation. And what Jesus is saying is to those seven churches, if they are not faithful, just like the world, they will be judged. If they are faithful, if we are faithful as a sin church, if Countryside is faithful, if Mission Road is faithful, if Summit Woods is faithful, and all of these other churches that hold a high view of Scripture and a gospel-centered understanding of discipleship, if we as local churches will remain faithful, then God will be faithful to give us exactly what we need to patiently endure and conquer and endure. That's the promise. And then he says something else that is very interesting. He says the seven stars are the seven angels. And you're going to hear this a lot from your pastor. I'm still working through this. Because the word in the original can either mean messenger or can mean divine being. And I'm still working through that, and I hope to be able to have a better handle on it next week as we hear to the angel of the church of Ephesus right. So give me some time. Give me some grace. But at this point, what I think this is, is I think these are actually divine beings. And I don't think that there's some, you know, secret that this unlocks that a sin church has a specific angel. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, listen, the angels are actually paying attention to the churches. And the angels actually have access to the churches that are not bound by the physical limitations of our universe. So they can see the church with so much more intimacy. We also saw that Jesus is the one walking in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of the churches. And so he is sovereign, and he can see all, and he's omnipotent, and he's omniscient. And this should both scare the dickens out of us, as well as encourage us. There's an accountability with this, isn't there? That the commission isn't just given by our commander, and then just let us do what we want to do. The commission is actually with great accountability. And I think when we recognize in this quick start guide our calling, our commander, and our commission, and we actually start to live out these instructions, then if we get a text that says not that the end of the age is coming, but God has ordained that we would face tribulation, we can begin to see how we have the tools that we need to be able to conquer and endure with joy whatever life sends us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?
Friends, this is hard. It's hard. You just put yourself in John's sandals and say that you were sent to an island that is remote and it is rocky and there's not much there. That, that would be hard. Imagine if you've read ahead in chapters 2 and 3 that we as a church experience the tribulation and the suffering that those churches experience. That would be hard. Just look at your own life, the past, maybe the present, maybe the anticipation of the future. Life is hard. But if you are in Jesus, God's expectations are that we conquer and endure joyfully. And in his mercy and in his great grace, he has given us everything through Christ to be able to accomplish that. Friend, maybe you're here today and you are not in Jesus. You've never had a point in your life where you have surrendered your sin nature to the cross. That you have trusted in Christ's completed work to forgive your sins and submitted your life to King Jesus. If you have not done that, this is your day. All of these promises are yours in Christ when you have submitted to him. Would you submit to him today? And then, friend, I know you might say, well, listen, I know I'm supposed to patiently endure, but you don't know my past. You don't know what I'm going through right now. You don't know what I'm anticipating in the future, but, but Christ does. And his instruction to the churches and to John and by extension to us is, listen, I know it's hard. I've been through this, Hebrews 4 says. I'm right there with you. And someday we will be in a kingdom where all of that is behind us and we don't experience those things anymore. But until then, listen, I've given you what you need to be able to conquer and endure with joy for the glory of Christ. May we lock arms together as brothers and sisters in Christ, continuing to encourage and equip one another until God calls us home to the glory of Christ.